Welcome to the Battle Cry Podcast with Convention of States Action President Mark Meckler. You can watch the original live broadcast Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Convention of States Facebook and Rumble channels. Good evening, everyone. My name is Mark Meckler, and I am here as your host of the Battle Cry Sunday evening. It's my favorite place to be anywhere in the country right here for two reasons. One, it means I'm at home. I love being at home. Uh, and number two, it means that I'm with you guys, the people that I love, the grassroots activists from around the country. Before we get started today, I got to introduce you to my two in-studio guests. They're not always here, but today they are. Down on the floor over here, you see Winston. And then in the back, you see Levi. I don't even know if you can see Winston. Anyway, both the dogs are here in studio. They're behaving themselves because they've recently eaten, which means they're probably just going to crash out the whole show. So I had to point them out to you. Uh, I want to talk today to start about what our battle cry is for the week. And, and that means what am I telling you that I think we need to be doing right now? It's important I say we. It's not just you. It's not aimed at you. It's all of us need to be doing this. And I would say the most important thing we can do is something conceptually called walking and chewing gum. And this is really important. And it's something that I think conservatives tend to be bad at. And what I mean by walking and chewing gum at the same time is I mean, we need to be able to focus on more than one thing. We tend as conservatives to be hyper-focused on one thing. And as we move forward right now, I think that thing is tending to be the 2024 election. And not even so much the primary, people are focused a little bit on the primary, but on the general election. I hear over and over, this is the most important election of our life. And I want to say, I agree with that. This is the most important election of our life. But I also have to say, realistically, 2020 was the most important election of my life before that. And before that, it was 2016 was clearly the most important election of my life and so on and so forth. I think I might be able to go all the way back to my first election in 1984. And so focusing on elections is important. These are important elections every time we have an election, the election has consequences. They think about what happened with Trump in 2016 and the fact that he was able to appoint three Supreme Court justices, change the course of history, millions of babies saved, among other great decisions that came down from the United States Supreme Court because of that election. So elections are important, but there are other things that go on during the during this time, during the time of an election, that we've got to be able to pay attention to as well. And there are a myriad of things we have to be able to pay attention to. I'll give you some examples. Every year, starting in January, virtually every state legislature, the vast majority, come into session January through, say, May, and they're doing a lot of things that affect your life. And most citizens don't pay any attention to what's going on in their state legislatures. If they do, they might pay attention to an issue or two. But these things are going to affect your life. They're going to affect taxes in your state. They're going to affect regulations in your state. They're going to affect the fight for life in your state. They're going to affect your ability to exercise your second amendment in your state. They're going to affect the ability whether parents have rights vis-a-vis -vis their children and against the schools in your state, whether they have the right to know, whether there's transparency and accountability in our schools. They're going to affect things like whether critical race theory is taught in your schools. It's going to affect things like uh, ESG and DEI, right? These programs that are intended to impose leftist ideology on companies in your state. All of those things are being fought out in your state legislature almost every year in almost every state. And if we get so hyper-focused on the election and we forget that this stuff is going on, then we're going to lose all of those fights or the majority of those fights. So when I say you need to be able to walk and chew gum, you need to be able to pay attention to the election, 
be engaged in the election, give money, follow the candidate you love, promote them, knock on doors, uh, go out and talk to people about it, get on the phone, text people. You need to be engaged in the election. I would never encourage people to not be engaged in the election. Got to do that. It's first and foremost. Then you've got to be willing to pay attention to what's going on in your state legislature for the reasons I just told you. Then I would go down the chain. And by the down the chain, I don't mean in importance. I mean just more and more local. So you got to pay attention to what's going on in your county or your parish. You need to know these things. All the same things I was describing in regard to your state legislature, those are going on more locally or in your city or even in your church or in your school or on your school board. So we as engaged citizens have got to be able to do more than one thing. Now, I want to be clear. It doesn't mean all of us can do all of those things because we can't. But it does mean that if we're going to save this country, we've got to be able to be engaged at every level as a group, as self-governing citizens, and we've got to be paying attention to everything as a group of self-governing citizens. So maybe your thing is, like all of us have to be, we're paying attention to the federal election. We're going to participate in that. We're going to work for the candidate of our choice. Maybe your thing is you're a convention of states activist. You're going to be lobbying for a convention of states resolution and states resident passed. You're going to be lobbying for other stuff pro-Second Amendment legislation, pro-life legislation, pro-election reform legislation. That's going to be really important as we go into 2024 and we protect our election system from the fraud we've seen in the past. So pick your areas, but pick more than one. All of us engaged in elections, but pick other things, two or three other things where you can give some of your time, some of your effort, and some of your money and be engaged. That's what I mean by walk and chew gum. Don't let the media distract you, show you the shiny object, that's the presidential election, and say that's the only thing that matters because that's not true and that's how we're going to lose. All right, so that's the walk and chew gum. I'm going to remind you of that at the end of the battle cry, but remember, you can do that. I think you can. So first in the news today, Senator Dianne Feinstein, the senior member of the United States Senate, passed away this week at 90. That's always sad. I mean, to me, when, when you lose a life, when somebody passes away and goes home to meet their maker. There's some sadness in that. But I have to say, losing somebody like Senator Dianne Feinstein from the Senate is actually a pretty good thing. Now, it won't get better because of who's going to get appointed to take her place, but I want you to think of some of the things she did. I would say one of the most heinous things that Senator Dianne Feinstein ever did in her entire life, in her career, ignominiously ending her career, she led the attack on Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Now, I'm going to be frank, Kavanaugh is not my favorite justice, but he certainly was no serial rapist like, like uh, Feinstein tried to present him as. She's the one who got the letter from notorious liar Diane Blasey Ford accusing Brett Kavanaugh of being a serial rapist back in high school. A letter that was backed by no facts, a better letter that was backed by no one else. No one stepped forward to verify the things. All of Diane Blasey Ford's friends who could have verified her story, could have spoken to the truth of her story, all said no recollection of that, didn't believe it was true, wasn't there, never heard of the party, never heard the story. Diane Feinstein led the charge on that. And so I would say of all the things that she'll go down for in history, that that's the biggest one. That kind of disgusting, vile, abusive slander of a seemingly good human being, whether people agree with his politics or not, whether you think he's a great Supreme Court justice or not, that kind of character assassination, that's what Dianne Feinstein leaves a legacy of. 
a willingness to use raw political power to destroy somebody's life because you don't agree with their judicial ideology or their judicial philosophy. It's disgusting. She led a lot of the fights for gun control. She was an anti-Second Amendment champion. She was a liberal from San Francisco. And so, well, it's always sad when somebody passes on and our regards and our prayers go out to her family. Having her leave the United States Senate, not a bad thing, except what will come will likely be worse. I don't mean to be depressing about that, but Senator Gavin Grusom Newsom is going to appoint her replacement. And the question is, who will he appoint? Uh, there's a bunch of theories about there, uh, out there about who he might appoint. He might choose somebody that would be a political ally uh, you know, already. Maybe somebody like Barbara Lee, he has said he was going to appoint a black woman if he had a chance to appoint somebody. Barbara Lee would be in that spot. Uh, then he said he might appoint a placeholder that really angered Barbara Lee. So who knows if it's going to be her. There are other people in the mix there. Who he chooses might indicate a lot to us about what his presidential aspirations are. It appears pretty clear to me that he's been aiming at the presidency. He actually has a debate, a debate scheduled in November on Fox News against Governor Ron DeSantis. This should be an incredible spectacle. I think this is going to be the best debate of the season. Should be interesting. I expect DeSantis to do very well against Newsom. Newsom's no po no uh, piker when it comes to debates. He's no poser. I think he can handle the debate. He just doesn't have the facts on his side. So the question will be, can DeSantis dissect him like he ought to? And by the way, this could be a breakout moment for Ron DeSantis in the presidential election. He needs one if he has any chance of overcoming President Trump. Uh, but it's going to be up to Gavin Newsom probably before that debate who he appoints to fill that Senate seat. I think then a question is, who's the staff? This is something people don't really look at. It's possible that the person who comes in retains Dianne Feinstein's, Feinstein's staff. Then you're basically going to see the same stuff continue. It's possible he appoints what they call a placeholder, somebody who agrees not to run, but who will fill the seat until the election. That's possible. All of the stuff is going to be interesting to watch it develop. In important news from the Sixth Circuit, that's the circuit court that oversees uh, Tennessee. Tennessee passed a law banning transgender mutilation surgery, childhood mutilations. And it's a, it was a great law. It was widely promoted and pushed by Matt Walsh. I think it's a super important thing to note that Matt Walsh has stepped out of the studio and into the field as an activist. It's rare that somebody does that. Matt's done that. He held a major rally at the state capitol there in Nashville, Tennessee. I spoke at that rally. And I think it's important to note that Matt did all this stuff and led the way, and this law got passed. It got stopped by a district court. Uh, they put an injunction in place, and the Sixth Circuit has now overturned that injunction. Why I think that's so important, one, just it's great because they're going to protect kids there in Tennessee from childhood gender mutilation surgery uh, and this barbarous butchery. So I think that's in and of itself great and important. But this, the decision itself was extraordinary in that it was plain uh, in its language, and it said that there's no special need for the courts to protect transgender people. And the judge noted, by the way, that only major law firms weighing in on this were law firms weighing in in favor of transgender people. That the, the presidential administration itself, the White House, had weighed in in favor of transgender people. That big corporations weighed in only in favor of transgender people. That the amicus briefs coming from the rich and the powerful organizations and entities and law firms all defending transgender people. Hardly 
a class that needs protecting. Probably right now, one of the most elevated and protected classes in the United States of America. They have great advantage over everybody else. And so I thought it was interesting that the judge pointed that out. I was really pleased to see it again. Good decision, uh, banning childhood mutilation, uh, allowing that law to stand, and great language from the judge talking about how trans, quote unquote, trans people, and by I want to be clear, there's no such thing as trans people. That's just a made up word. The reality is you can't transition between genders. So I, I don't believe in the use of that word. These are men who think they're women and women who think they're men or men who fantasize about being women and women who fantasize about being men. Either way, form of mental illness. Anyway, the judge said that's not a protected class. So I love that. Speaking of somebody who is very protected as a class and as a family, it's the Biden family. And this week on Thursday, we saw the opening of the Biden impeachment hearings. First, let's talk generally about whether those impeachment hearings are a good thing or not. I think they are because I think transparency is good. While Democrats try to claim and people on the left try to claim there's no evidence of Joe Biden's corruption, there's been a lot of evidence pre presented of Joe Biden's corruption. Uh, certainly enough to open an impeachment inquiry. It's important for us to remember an impeachment inquiry it's just that. It's an inquiry. It's a search for evidence. This gives Congress maximum power to search for evidence of corruption, uh, further evidence, conclusive evidence of corruption to determine whether or not, as the Constitution says, we have high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, I want to make one thing very clear. If what they claim Donald Trump did, if the grounds for Donald Trump's impeachment, the inquiries and uh, the actual impeachment votes themselves, if those are the grounds for impeachment, then I would say we already have 10 times, 100 times the evidence that Joe Biden committed impeachable offenses as compared to Donald Trump. I mean, let's remember that Joe Biden lied repeatedly about knowing anything about his son's business dealings, pretending he didn't know anything about them. We now have conclusive evidence that he participated in meetings about them, that he dined with people who were his son's business partners, that he had meetings with them, that he took phone calls with them. He knew what was going on. So he's been lying to us. We know there's at least $24 million of suspicious funds going into companies owned by Biden family entities uh, for which they have no skills, no expertise, no services provided really other than Biden family influence. We know that Joe Biden went to Ukraine and threatened the Ukrainians with uh, a loss of over a billion dollars in aid if they didn't immediately terminate. The prosecutor was looking into Burisma company where Joe Biden's son served on the board and received millions of dollars for doing so. So we have tons and tons of evidence. We have tons of evidence of corruption in the cover-up of this scandal, of the way that the IRS has handled their investigation, the DOJ, the FBI. We've got whistleblowers who've presented all this evidence. So the evidence is clear and convincing. Is it enough to convict and to impeach, I'm not going to say that yet. I like to withhold judgment, but I would say if the standard is the Trump impeachment, well, then it's enough to convict. So what the, what the Republicans did on the first day on Thursday is they laid out sort of the base evidence. They made the case to the American people, I think very effectively, why there needed to be an impeachment inquiry, not the conclusive evidence of impeachment, why there needs to be impeachment, a vote of impeachment, but why there's enough evidence to open an inquiry. And for over six hours, all the Democrats did was complain and the complaints are disingenuous. Again, if you look at Trump, for example, being impeached on the basis of one phone call, of course, Trump calls it a perfect phone call and call it whatever you want. 
but he exerted much less influence and much less pressure on the Ukrainians than Joe Biden did. And we know Joe Biden actually got the tit for the tat, right? We know Joe Biden brags about getting that prosecutor fired, the prosecutor that was looking into the company where his son, Hunter Biden, sat on the board. So if the standard is the Trump standard, then I think there's plenty of evidence. I think that the Republicans did a good job of laying this out. I like what Jonathan Turley had to say, law professor from Washington University, who said that the evidence for the final impeachment vote is not there yet, but that there's certainly plenty of evidence to open the inquiry. So we're gonna have to keep our eyes on this. The question is, what are the Republicans doing here? What's the end game? Will they have the final votes for impeachment? I don't know. They have a narrow majority in the House of Representatives, so they may or may not have the final votes necessary for impeachment when the time comes. What I think they're doing, and what I think is wise and appropriate politically, is I think they're going to run this thing through the election in 2024, and they're going to continue to bring out evidence showing how corrupt Joe Biden has been his entire life, how corrupt his family is, how corrupt his son is, how it's all tied together in a web. And I think by presenting that information to voters all the way up through 2024, I think they do grave damage to Joe Biden. It's important to remember only about a third of the American people, I think is 37% now, even think Joe Biden should run for office again. So as a political strategy, I think it's not a bad thing. 54% of voters are not in favor of impeachment right now to 37% who are. We'll see if those numbers change as the impeachment hearings go on. One of the things that I think personally that Joe Biden should be impeached for is his dealings, his family's dealings with China over a long period of time. And I think it's appropriate to just say, as Trump did, China, 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 right? I mean, China is an existential problem for the United States of America. This is something we're facing that we've literally as a country never faced before. We have had always in American history, global enemies of one form or another. What we've never had is a global enemy that we have invited inside of our country to be involved in every aspect of our country. If you think about where China is in the United States right now, they're in our educational system. Uh, Ron DeSantis came out this week and said, we shouldn't have them in our universities. I can't believe that's even a discussion anymore. We should root Chinese money and Chinese influence out of every one of our universities now, as deep as the root goes, uh, root and branch. They need to be thrown out of the universities, Confucius Institutes, or any other insidious way. They should not be allowed. The CCP or anybody related to the CCP or anybody related to China should not be allowed to give money to universities for anything. And that goes not just for universities, for high schools, middle schools, grammar schools, any form of our educational institutions. Chinese, uh, the Chinese government should not be involved in that. And anybody with ties to the Chinese government should not be involved in that. And by the way, that's pretty much any Chinese citizen. The Chinese government is a totalitarian regime, and that means they exercise dominion and control, force and blackmail and bribery against any Chinese citizen living in the United States of America is potentially subject to that. I want to be really clear, I'm not anti-Chinese people. This is really important. It's a difficult distinction, but it's important. Chinese citizens literally are under the thumb of the Chinese government. We have to be very careful of that. Chinese Americans, people of Chinese descent, I'm not talking anything about that. I guarantee you, factcheck.org, whoever it is, uh, we, we had a hit piece against us this week by, uh, uh, I forget, People for the American Way, all these leftist organizations. They're going to say that I'm, quote unquote, anti-Chinese people. Not true. But I am anti the CCP and anybody they might have influence over. We need to be really 
really careful about that. We ought to be aggressively anti-China, not just in our educational institutions, but we shouldn't be doing business with China. We as individuals, this is very difficult, should do everything we can to not do business with China. And I want to acknowledge, difficult. You could look around my office, look around my house. I'm sure you're going to find all kinds of products that are Chinese made. I do everything I can to shop non-Chinese. If I go on Amazon, they make it hard, but I try to figure out what is and what isn't manufactured by the Chinese. I go out on the web. I look for other sources for non-Chinese made goods. I think we as Americans really need to start doing this. We should boycott China every chance we get. We even have this problem as an organization. I want to say this openly. We do everything we can to source our goods in the United States or other allied countries. Occasionally, we do buy from China. We find that most Americans, even Americans who support Convention of States, they struggle to pay the prices that it costs to buy American-made goods. So you and I are going to have to start making these hard choices. Do we want to have the goods at a cheap price and buy Chinese, or do we want to not have the goods, or do we want to pay more? I think we're going to have to take a very strong stance against China in every single way. China is doing all kinds of evil things to America in our education institution, spending money promoting wokeness, weakening our country, using software apps like TikTok to pollute the minds of our young people. But they're also destroying our border. The Chinese are intimately involved in the drug trade coming across our southern border. They provide the majority of the precursor chemicals for fentanyl, which is killing tens of thousands of Americans right now. It's over 70,000 Americans a year that's coming across our border provided by the Chinese. And they know what they're doing. They're making money as they do it, not only making money, but destabilizing the United States of America. We have to ask ourselves, how long are we going to allow this to happen? How long are we going to have a completely open border? Our border is open. Let me say that one more time, just perfectly clearly. I don't want there to be any confusion. I live in Texas. I know, we know, our border is completely, unequivocally open. Open to criminals, to terrorists, to drug cartels, to, to dealers, to murderers, to child rapists, to slavers. That border is completely open. You can go out in two minutes. You can see all the video footage that's out there. We had Democrat Representative Ayanna Presley, I believe she's from Massachusetts, said yesterday, no doubt about it, our border is secure. I don't know, maybe she's taken some of the drugs coming across the border that makes her think that. She's hallucinating. She said the border's secure and we're in the midst of a humanitarian crisis. No, we have a humanitarian crisis because our border is wide open. Meanwhile, Elon Musk, probably the most famous guy in the world right now, certainly the biggest X account in the world right now, certainly more people see his posts on X than anybody else. He was at the border live streaming the crisis personally this week. And it was great to see Musk there taking an interest in that. Okay, this guy is absolutely incredible. I've never seen anybody like him in my lifetime. I don't know what you would call him, the Da Vinci of our lifetime. He is truly a Renaissance man, obviously engaged in everything. But to go to the border, to take the time to go to the border with his phone and personally live stream what he's seeing at the border, I thought that was really incredible. I think it's an important moment in our fight against what's going on in the border. And there is a fight, no doubt. There's a fight between Texas and the federal government. It's a mess down there. Don't take your eye off the ball. Again, this is something. Watch the election and pay attention to what's going on the border and be in that fight to secure our border. It's a fight. This is part of the cultural fight. They're trying to destroy our culture by flooding our country with people who don't understand, don't care about, and aren't adopting our culture. This is really important that people who come into the country come in legally, 
properly and that they love the United States of America and adopt our culture. And that is anti-left. The left hates America. They hate our culture. They're trying to impose their thought police on us. They're trying to censor us. They're trying to force us to speak the way they want us to speak, to alter reality by the language we use. And, and we've seen this taken to new extremes now in Michigan. In Michigan, they are now the first state that will force all of their judges to use pronoun preferences of lawyers and parties to litigation. Yeah, you heard that right. They are going to force particular words to come out of the mouths of judges. And when judges bend to reality, that means they're bending to the dictates of political correctness, to the dictates of political persecution, to the dictates of the state about the words that they say. That is total speech control. And that means they're no longer judges. They actually then at that point are political actors acting on behalf of the radical left in the United States of America. So this is now going on in Michigan. The question that we have to ask ourselves right now, and this is super important, will any of them refuse? These are judges. They should know better. They should know forcing speech is unconstitutional. So let's see if any of them have the courage of their convictions. There are plenty of conservative judges in Michigan. Will they stand and fight? And frankly, if all the conservative judges, if all the Republican judges are willing to stand and say no to this madness, then the rule won't stand. They can't discipline all of them at once. They can discipline the few who try to step up if it's just a few, and they will do that. They will cull the herd of those who object and those who are willing to stand. They can't do it if all the conservatives stand. So I'm going to be really curious to watch this. I predict that the judges will stand down, unfortunately. All right, we're going to go to Q&A here. Uh, actually, before we go to Q&A, I almost forgot. I apologize. We're going to talk about the presidential election. We got to do it every week. Who's hot and who's not? So, of course, this week... We had the second round of presidential debates. That was held on Fox News. Uh, Dana Perino was one of the hosts. Uh, Stuart Marnie was another one of the hosts. And then somebody from Univision that I didn't know. And I have to say, they be clowned themselves. So when I say who's not, we'll start with who's not hot this week. Fox News. An embarrassment. A continuing embarrassment. I used to love Fox News. I still have friends who work at Fox News. There are good individuals at Fox News, guaranteed. People who are stuck there based on career uh, contracts, based on having to support their families. Maybe they got no other place to go. They're going to have to go somewhere or they're going to have to give up their values, their morals, their convictions. Because what I saw on that stage was a Republican abomination. To Ronna McDaniels, Romney, and yeah, I intentionally used Romney, even though I think she's dropped that recently. To Ronna McDaniel, Romney, who is the head of the RNC, you should be ashamed of yourself. You set the rules for this debate. You allowed Fox to create this debacle where the candidates would be put in a position where they're answering primarily questions that sounded like they were written by hosts on MSNBC. Ronna McDaniels, Romney, it is a travesty that you are still the head of the RNC. There was another good candidate in Harmeet Dillon, and unfortunately, you managed to get your cronies to all vote for you so that they could keep the gravy train going. And this is what we get out of a debate that is an absolute embarrassment. The pinnacle of that embarrassment was unfortunately Dana Perino, somebody that I have had respect for over the years, somebody who I think was a good press secretary to a president, somebody who I think has been a good news reporter, generally speaking. When she asked what was the quintessential, stupid, moronic, childish question she, she put a pad of paper in front of each of them and asked them to write down who they would vote off the island. This is not 
some lame reality TV show for ratings. This is not some place where you're trying to put the candidates on the spot and ask them to embarrass themselves or play some stupid childish game. This is supposed to be a presidential debate. This is supposed to be a debate where we're getting the genuine opinions and looking at the contrast and comparison between the candidates other than Donald Trump. And instead, Dana Perino chooses to play some stupid game. I wonder really if that was imposed on her by the brass at Fox News or that was her idea. Either way, who's not hot this week? the debate hosts on the second Republican debate. Who's hot this week? Well, I think if you look at the debate itself, which candidate was the best at the debate, uh, the numbers would tell us that people thought Ron DeSantis was the best. I, I would agree with that. I think he was the best. I think he looked the most presidential. I thought his best moment was when Dana Perino tried to play this stupid game and Ron DeSantis just said, no, <clears throat> no, I'm not doing that. We're not doing that. And I thought that was, it was a good moment. It was a presidential moment. It was an aggressive moment when he pushed back against the game. And then all the other candidates went along with him, but he took leadership in that moment. So I'd say out of the candidates on stage, he was hot. If you look at really who's hot overall, it's still Donald Trump. And he made the right move, but politically speaking, by not being on that debate stage, Chris Christie continued to try to attack him. He called him Donald Duck for ducking the debates. I just, I don't think it's going to stick. I thought it was lame. I think Christie's whole shtick is attacking Donald Trump. I think he's actually auditioning for MSNBC for a continuing gig. He's got nothing else. He's at the bottom of the barrel. This is where people who are Republicans who are not really Republicans tend to go. The bottom of the barrel, they end up on MSNBC. So I would say Fox is not hot and the least hot on that stage was Chris Christie. All right, a couple of questions before we close out. Mary Ellen Provonsky asks, how's the COS TV show coming along? Uh, that show is called the Mr. America Show. Not about me, to be clear. It's about Mr. and Miss America, Mr. and Mrs. America. We're searching them out across the country, elevating them. We just finished filming this week. Uh, we filmed with Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson in North Carolina. That wraps up the third pilot episode. Those will now go into post-production, all the fancy editing and smoothing out stuff that they'll do. Uh, and then after that, we'll have three complete pilots. And then we're going to find a place to put that on the air. It may go to a network. We have networks who are interested. It may go straight to YouTube. I don't know where it ends up going, but we'll get it out there one way or another. But probably, I'm guessing, maybe by the end of the year. That's what I'm shooting for right now. It takes a long time to do this stuff. Robert Gable asks, what's the latest on the resolution in Kansas? Is it still in court over the supremacy clause? Uh, Robert, it's not in court yet. Uh, that stuff is still being talked about and strategized. I hope that we'll have more developments on that maybe in the next month or so. Edna Kruger asks, what laws can we uh, pass to restrict presidential edicts? You know, I think based on the fact that you have the separation of powers among the branches, I think you could have Congress object to presidential edicts. I think you could have courts say that a president has uh, overstepped his bounds as president. He's legislating from the White House and is not allowed to do that. But I don't think there are laws that we could pass to present, prevent that. There are amendments we could pass to prevent that. I think we do need to limit the exercise of executive power, rebalance the branches, put more of that power back in the hands of Congress. That might make me a little nervous, honestly. <laughs> Having Congress have more power, I'd rather have Congress have the power because that power is really your power. That's where representative government is supposed to rest. So that's basically the way to do it is by calling a convention of states. Remember, if you're not already involved in convention of states, go to conventionofstates.com. 
look on the Take Action tab, sign up to be a volunteer, sign the petition. Whether it's passed in your state already or not, we still need you. We're involved in elections where it's legal. We're involved in poll watching and being election judges. We're involved in running polling places. Uh, we're involved in the state legislatures. We're involved in protecting the COS resolutions everywhere it's passed. If you want to be involved in it politically, I can promise you in some way, shape or form, Convention of States is doing those things. So again, go to conventionofstates.com and click on the Take Action tab, fill out the petition, go to conventionofstates.com forward slash store, purchase from our store. A lot of great sales going on right now. You can get your COS swag, a lot of really cool stuff there. Uh, and finally, remember, walk and chew gum. Be involved in the elections, be involved in your state legislature, involved in local elections, pay attention to what's going on on your school board, county or city level government. And this is serious stuff. Country's counting on you. We'll be back again next week with the battle cry. Mark Meckler signing out for now. God bless you. This has been the podcast version of the battle cry with Mark Meckler. Visit conventionofstates.com slash pod to learn more. Thank you for listening.